Welcome to church. Who went to the uh, who went to the prequel to the the new Star Wars stuff in the I think early two thousand late nineties? Who went and sat there? Yeah, I remember that. I grew up in the era like the golden era of I would say sequels. Like that's when sequels were big, right? I my favorite trilogy of all time is Back to the Future, and I loved that. And then Indiana Jones, and you had like I was born in nineteen eighty, uh, and so it was coming off of Rocky and those types of things. And then, of course, maybe the greatest sequel of all time, The Terminator. I mean, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, hard. Yeah, we can climb. I mean, really, really special movie. I don't know what else to say. I mean, you had, like, Guns and Roses in that, and it was just, like, unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, so I grew up in the golden age of sequels, and then I remember... When after, of course, then the, you know, the sequels of Star Wars, and then they're talking about how uh, if you knew anything about Star Wars, you knew that there was like a nine-story saga, and they told the middle three, and it's like, we're going to go back and tell the first three. And I remember the word prequel kind of buzzing around, and there was a couple, I think, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something. There's some kind of prequel thing that happened in the 60s and 70s or whatever, but nothing like when the Star Wars prequels came out. It was just like, whoa, this is so cool to go back and see that. And that's the thing about a prequel. A prequel is all about vision. A prequel is all about you're looking at what is in front of you, and then you're wondering, how did we get here? So you're looking back and going, oh, this is the roadmap. This is the step. This is the development of the character of how we got here. I mean, you remember those moments in Return of the Jedi, right, where you're watching Luke and his father have these discussions about him being transformed into this bad Sith Lord. And you're thinking, how did we get here? You know, and you hear all the stuff throughout. There's one time in in A New Hope where Kenobi is talking with Luke, and they're having this discussion about his father being, or you don't know it is at the time, but his father is this amazing Jedi who, like, you know, was the best in the whole world. And you're thinking, after you see Vader, you're going, how did we get here? How did this happen? Of course, you learn that, no, I am your father. You learn that. But once you learn that, you're going, my goodness, how did this guy become that way? And then, of course, when you get to the very end of Return of the Jedi, and if you're upset that I'm spoiling this for you, tough. I mean, like, you missed the boat. Like, at the end, when Luke has his dad, his dad's dying, and the Death Star is about to blow up, and he takes his helmet off, and he looks at Luke, and he's like, you were right about me. You were right about me. There was good in you. And that's, remember, that's what Luke said. If you don't remember, get with it. He says, there is good about you. He says there is, I feel the good, remember? And so you're wondering, well, the good, where's that good? What do you mean? There was something there before? And then you get to see that like Anakin kind of at the very end, he has this amazing moment where he comes back to where he's supposed to be. And you get to see in the prequels, this kind of boy that has all this good and all this stuff and the conflict, right? The conflict of hate and good and evil and who we're becoming. And the thing about a prequel is we're looking back so that we can look ahead. We're looking back so that we can look at where we are and we can, we can go, what is this? And we can kind of take all the pieces and elements of the story and go, how does this all play out in my life? And where is this all headed? That's what a prequel is. It's about vision. It's about seeing. It's about knowing that if I can see the vision of the past, then maybe I can look at my life today and I can see the vision of my future. This is one of the reasons why the biblical narrative being revealed over thousands of years 
That's the way God did it because stories have this ability to kind of put us in them so that we can look at the story and we can go, hmm, what's the, what's the lesson here? Where are we going? What's the point of this? What's, this? what's this mean for me? And of course, vision, if you're looking in the past to see where you're going, prequel, if you're looking in the past to see where you are, if you're looking in the past to get an idea of where you should go in the future, then vision becomes critical. A revelation, right? To be able to see something, to go, oh, let's see the way they did it. Let's see the way they acted. Let's see what is, what's going on, what we shouldn't do, what we should do. That's a critical component for your life and mine today. Now, the book of Proverbs, it speaks directly to this idea of vision. And in the context of Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs, like I taught in a series last year, the book of Proverbs is an equation. Proverbs are an equation. They're not a promise. Most of the time, it's two plus two is four. That's what a proverb is. If you go this way and act this way, these good things will happen most of the time. So you can rely on that. And in the context of Proverbs 29, what the author is getting at is that there's this revelation, there's this vision that can take place, and the vision of God is going to be provision. It's going to be direction for your life. So you have to have vision. You, you might have grown up in church and heard this phrase, Without vision, the people will perish. And that's a kind of a popular phrase that people use and people in leadership conferences will talk about and say, like, you need vision. You need to have your eye on the ball. You need to see where it's going to go. You need to kind of see it and then be it, you know, be the ball, Happy Gilmore, Tiger Woods, whatever you want to call it. There's all kinds of, you know, do that, see it. And you see it to come into fruition. But the Proverbs 29 passage um, is talking about how when God gives us direction for our life, he does so through vision, and that vision is going to actually be the way that we make it through. It's going to be the way that we take the proper steps. So it says this is in the message version. I love this translation. The classic was, without vision, people perish. But this is what it says. If people can't see what God is doing, they will stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And so in the context, it's talking about the law. It's talking about the statutes of God. It's talking about the way we're supposed to live our life. If people listen to the vision or the revelation of God, which can be the stories of the Bible, the law in the Bible, the way that God revealed himself, if we look at that vision, that vision leads to decision. The actual words of God and the vision of God are not just supposed to be something about where we're headed, but how we head that way. So in the book of Psalms, David says, the word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. So the vision of God becomes the actual illumination of every step that I can take. And how do I get that vision? I have to look back at what God has done. I have to see what's going on there. I have to uh, interpret and filter the world I live in today through the vision that I saw in the past. And I have to think about what that means for my future. What vision does is it becomes very, very useful when we get to see what God's vision is for our lives, we get to see the way that God did things. When there's a prequel to the way this all is going down, it's very, very utilitarian to have a vision. You want to know what the purpose of your life is? What path you're supposed to take? Could it be that throughout God's prequels and the things that he's shown us in the past, that it actually has to do with where you're supposed to go in the future? Vision becomes very utilitarian. Vision identifies the obstacles and the tools and it creates a pathway forward for us. Uh, and one way to put it, like we said already, is people perish with no vision. 
they stumble and fall all over themselves. And to put it inversely, no vision, no hope. Where am I going? Why am I going? You know, when you get to look at the prequel, you get to kind of see the way it unfolds, and you get to learn the lessons. You get to kind of export what's not right. You get to import what's good. You get to take the proper steps forward, and you get to place yourself in the story. This is one of the things I think is so important about books and storytelling and narrative, is what God has done with the historical revelation of the Bible and the story of Israel is he's giving you an opportunity to place yourself in the movie. He's giving you an opportunity to go, which part do I want to play? Who, who's that? Who's this? What should I do? What, what vision does in the past is it shows you the arc of, of narrative, the arc of life, one way or the other, and it lets you decide moving forward, who do you want to be? You get to ask the question, how do we get here? How did we get here? What came before this that got us here? Where are we going? What's this all leading up to? What's the point of this? How about this one when we look in the narrative? Who can I trust? Who can I trust? Wouldn't it be so nice to know, like, when you're walking through life that you've been given some insight through the revelation of God about who you can trust? And how about this one? Who's the villain? Who's the actual villain in the story? Who's the one that actually uh, I should depend upon? Or who's the one that's evil? And then, of course, if you have the ability just for one moment to look at the narrative of something that happened in the past and look who the bad guy is, then hopefully you have the sense of mind to go, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. And if you have a hard time and there's disparity and you can watch a story and there is a villain and you never, ever connect with the fact that there's a villain in the story and there's probably a villain in your story and there's probably a hero in your story and there's probably a victim in your story and there's probably something going on, if you never make that connection, watch out, you might be the villain. You get to ask yourself the question, who am I in this tale, in this saga? When you look at the Star Wars saga, I mean, this is the overlap of all kinds of ancient rituals and plus some Judeo-Christian ideas. I mean, it's all just kind of all woven in together into George Lucas's, you know, illuminated mind. That's what it is. We identify with the stories. And sometimes, like I have alluded to, we really miss the point of stories. We get focused on one thing or the wrong thing, and then we miss the point. And so today, as we look at the prequel, I want to make sure that we, uh, we get the point of the story and you get the point of your story. It's very often to look at a story and miss the point. I was uh, watching the movie A Quiet Place. Anybody seen A Quiet Place? Anybody seen A Quiet Place 2? Well, it took me a year to watch A Quiet Place 2. I was on an airplane, and I put on A Quiet Place 2 because I thought that the first one was so good. I get slightly anxious on airplanes, right? I just do. I just slightly, not too bad. A little bit of claustrophobia, a little bit of fear and anxiety about what the heck is going on out there and how the wing is still on. That starts to throw me off just a hair. And, uh, and so then I put on A Quiet Place too. They were offering, offering that. And I felt my blood pressure rise. And I thought, I don't think I should watch this right now, especially with the part where the kids, and I'm not trying to give it away, but there's a part where the kids are basically locked away and they can't breathe and they get hurt, and you're like thinking, oh my Lord, what is going to happen to these kids? I couldn't watch it at that part because of my kids. 
It made me think about my kids. And I'm just thinking, oh, man, this is too much for me to think about what I would do if I was in that scenario where you're not allowed to talk, you can't make any noises, and you have a screaming baby that you have to put an oxygen mask over and put in a little Noah basket. Sorry to give too much away, but that's what happens. <clears throat> and, and I just I, I had to turn it off. So the next week, I come into the office, and I told Ryan I tried to watch Ryan Donovan. I tried to watch A Quiet Place, too. And he was like, oh, my gosh, that movie was so good. I was like, I had to turn it off. He's like, why? I was like, because it made me think of my kids. I couldn't do that. It was too hard to be in that reality. And he was like, oh, my gosh. And Ryan has three kids. And I was like, did you ever once think about your three kids? He goes, never once did I think about my three kids. (laughs) And I was just like, he, he looked at me. And if you know Ryan, he's just like the most amazing human. He's so full of like just goodness that like his eye, he's just like, maybe that says something about me. I was like, maybe it does. You can kind of miss the point of a story, right? Like you can, you know, you can kind of see what's going on. I mean, the whole point of that story, one of the children's dialogue, I'll stop giving it away. Go watch it if you want. But, you know, you can really get focused on a story. There's a story of a, uh, of a guy who worked at a factory and uh, one day he's leaving the factory, got a wheelbarrow, and he put this box, this box right in the middle of the, uh, of the wheelbarrow, and, and then he closed it, and he tried to go out of the, out of the uh, factory, and the security guard stopped him, and he was like, hey, what's in the box? And he's like, well, you know, we cut a lot of stuff, a lot of wood here, so I swept up all of the wood uh, dust, the sawdust, and I put it in this box. I'm just going to take it home. And he goes, can I open it? Sure. So he opens it up. Sure enough. There's a bunch of sawdust in the box. So he lets him go. So the next day, same thing, goes up, looks in the box, sawdust, day three, stops looking at it, just lets him go. Every day goes out there with a wheelbarrow and with this box with sawdust in it. He gets to like the seventh or eighth day and the security guard's back there again. He goes, he goes you know, what, really? And he goes, let me look in there again. He goes and opens it up and it's sawdust. And he goes, you know, I'm sorry, I, I gotta tell you, it just feels like you're stealing something. He says, I just feel like you're taking something and stealing it. And he goes, look, uh, let me set your mind at ease. If you just tell me, the security guard said, what you're stealing, I, I, won't, I won't turn you in. I won't cause you any trouble. Just tell me what you're stealing. He goes, oh, okay, I'll tell you. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> it's so easy, isn't it, to like be, be kind of like tricked into thinking about what it's not about? You know, it's like hidden in plain sight. You see, part of the Easter story is the reality of what it means for you is so epic, it's so massive, that we can lose it in plain sight. Could it possibly be that the story of Easter has a prequel? Could it possibly be that the story of Easter is the story that is told and is supposed to be told and will be told over and over again, and you are actually cordially invited to participate in the actual story? and play a role. It's an amazing reality. The prequel, the vision, where are we going? Where did we come from? What's my role? Who am I? Who's the victim? Who's the hero? Who's the helper? So we're going to look at the prequel, probably, you know, one of the first uh, prequels to the story of the cross and the resurrection. Now, if you study theology, you, you go through these different classes where you learn that there is layer after layer all throughout the Old Testament of what you might call visions of Christ or Christologies that are just found all over the place. You got the Moses basket, right? And right, you know, so the baby is saved in the Moses basket and then gets picked out 
well, it's the same type of wood and the same type of pitch that is made, you know, made up Noah's Ark. And then Noah's Ark kind of represents this idea of being saved from the flood of sin and death. And there's more to it, but there's just everywhere you look. The quintessential story is, of, is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, raise your hand if you grew up and you know, even from a pop reference, the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Just raise your hand. If you don't know, this is a story about a man named Abraham who God promises he's going to bless him with a nation, and that through his nation offspring, his sons, 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 and all that, that through him, his family would bless the whole world and bring all the nations together to the unified table of God. All right? So the, the tension of the story is that Abraham and his wife are not able to have kids. And so he starts to doubt God's promise. And then through a great sequence of events, God blesses Abraham and Sarah with a child named Isaac. His name is Isaac because his name means laughter. And they just think it's so funny that she's like 95 and having a baby, which is actually pretty funny. And so, so, you know, they just can't believe that there's a baby being born, right? Well, then what happens is, is God goes to Abraham, who couldn't have a baby and had one late in life, and says, you should sacrifice your son to me. Now, to all of us, we kind of go, what kind of God is this? And it's precisely that, that the author, uh, why the author is telling the story the way he is, because in the time that Abraham was alive, sacrifice was something that people would do in the culture to help control their context. Now, I don't know the like, exact historical reason anthropologically that this became so. It was probably through trial and error. What would happen is if someone was a farmer or someone was working with animals then what they would do is they, they, they believed that God was up in the heavens. And so they would sacrifice or burn some of what was valuable to them and send it up into the heavens to sm- through smoke. It's like you burn something and it goes up. So you're thinking, okay, well, what would happen is if someone would burn some whatever, some type of harvest that they have, and then the rains would come. And if that got synced up where I burned stuff that matters to me and then more rain comes then now you're reinforcing the conduct. Oh boy, I'm going to give more. This time I'm going to give a bunch of barley. This time I'm going to give a bunch of animals. Whatever it is, we're going to burn them, burn them, burn them to where you can imagine if you take this logic all the way through, people during the time of Abraham was very normal for them to sacrifice their children because big sacrifice, big payoff. It's like, hey, well, we have 13 of these kids. Let's see what, what kind of harvest we can get from little Jude. I don't know. Very grotesque. I don't think it's funny to sacrifice your kids, but that's actually a funny little bit. Um, so, so that's what Abraham, that's what's going on here, right? Abraham is being, being kind of pulled into the contextual reality of sacrificing his son, which is why, you know, he kind of moves forward knowing what to do. But the part that is beautiful is how God, through the stories, story, reveals that he's nothing like the gods that people have been sacrificing to. And that he has this wonderful promise, but that God is actually trying to test Abraham's trust of him, which is a big, big part of all of our realities. So we're going to read this story. I want to show you something. This is the, this is the, uh, the, the prequel to the Easter story. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. 
When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go and the boy, while I and the boy go over there, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, uh, Father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. And what happens in the following chapters after what we just read is something very, very interesting. Uh, Isaac isn't spoken about again until he's married. In the meantime, Abraham goes down the mountain and he employs or deploys his helper whose name, his servant, his name is Eleazar. And Eleazar's job is to go to this place and find his son, a bride, his son, Isaac, a bride. And he goes and finds the bride and then he brings the bride back. And at that moment, Isaac comes out of this place that is, called, uh, that is really called God sees your plight. So he comes out of this place and he is united to his bride. So what you have in this story is you have all of these elements in the prequel. You have the father, you have the son, you have wood, you have worship, you have a ram, you have a substitute, you have thorns, you have a helper, you have a bride, and you have a wedding, a wedding. Now, for those of you that don't know, and you're all really smart, this is effectively the entire narrative of Jesus' death his burial, his resurrection, his giving of the Holy Spirit, his ascension, and 
his, uh, his giving of the Holy Spirit to the church and uh, his final one day coming back to earth. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God sent his son and he put him on a place uh, uh, on wood. He put him on a cross and that that would be a sacrifice of worship. And he is called the lamb of God. A ram is a male lamb. And while he is on that cross, the Bible teaches that he is the propitiation or that he is the substitution for us, that he takes the place of our sin the way that a ram took the place of Isaac. And that uh, when the ram is caught in the thorns, we see that Jesus is called the king of the Jews and that the Romans, to mock Jesus, put a crown of thorns or thicket on his head, saying, if you're a king, then you will have this crown of thorns. After Jesus dies and then is risen from the dead, uh, what we see is that he breathes the Holy Spirit on his disciples. He ascends into heaven. And then 50 days later, the Holy Spirit comes to the church in a time called Pentecost, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God is the helper. That's what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. It's the helper, the Eleazar, that is there to help the bride. The helper helps the bride. It's our gift as the church, to have the Holy Spirit reside in us, take care of us, lead us so we can follow it until one day the Son will return and the bride will be united to its husband. It's a prequel. This whole story is the story of something that we look at all the time. It's what we see. This is what we're right in the middle of. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? I mean, you know, a lot of people think, uh, uh, scholars believe that Isaac, you know, I grew up hearing that Isaac was like probably 10 or 12. Scholars believe he was 33. Scholars believe that in order for him to carry the wood for the sacrifice, he had to be like a grown man. And so what you have is you have like a Jesus character who becomes this substitution And you might think, well, wait a minute, Jesus on the cross actually dies. Well, in the story between Abraham and Isaac, effectively, Isaac dies. Because he's about to kill him. I mean, Abraham is gonna kill Isaac. And God stops him. He says, at a heart level, you've done it. And then there's a replacement. In the story of Jesus, he dies. But the truth of the story of Easter is that you have a son who is the substitution, who is the sacrificial lamb, who takes the place for you and me, takes the weight of sin and death, and then overcomes that in resurrection. And so we have this kind of son still alive today. And here's the reality. Here's the truth. The Easter sequel can be your prequel. Because what's happening in the story of Abraham and Isaac is the same thing that's happening in the story of Jesus on the cross is the same thing that is the vision for your and my life. Everything about what Jesus does on the cross is a picture of what you and I are called to every single day. It's how we're supposed to live our lives. Jesus, when he was on this earth, before he died on the cross, he said to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and you have to take up your cross. And for Jesus taking up his cross... It meant I'm going to do the only thing that I can do that can bring about blessing and goodness to the world around me. And so you want to talk about having vision for your life. You want to know what you're supposed to do. You want to know how you're supposed to live. There's the prequel. Easter's the sequel. You get to go and live it. 
Every one of us is called to take on what we're great at, what the purpose of our life is, is to look at what we're passionate about, look at what we're gifted regarding, and then take that and leverage it and spill our blood, spill our time, use our energy, all to bring about the goodness that can only come from that sacrifice. And so you look at your life and you go, I think I want to be like Jesus. I think I want to follow in his footsteps. Then what you're going to do is you're going to look at this prequel, and then you're going to look at the cross, and you're going to look at this mountain. You're going to look at this thing that you go, you know what? I'm taking all I have. I'm going up that hill. I'm going to lay it down. And every single time when a person in the name of Jesus gives the best of themselves to make the world around them spring up to new life, the way that Jesus gives the best of himself, and it's the beginning of new creation, and humans all receive the Holy Spirit of God. And from that, the church for 2,000 years has brought about the world's greatest goodness, second to none. When you do the same thing, what you start to see is the world becoming beautiful all around you because you laid something down, because you took up your cross. You see, here's the thing. This is the narrative. And you and I might look at this story and we go, who's the hero? Well, maybe that's uh, Abraham or maybe that's Isaac. And we look at the story of Jesus and certainly we understand Jesus is the hero. But the thing about the hero in every story is the real hero of every story was never trying to be the hero. In fact, most of the time when you have someone who's trying to be the hero, they're the villain. You know, you're trying to make yourself great. You're trying to lift up your name. You're trying to become something. I want to be a hero. I want to be known. I think of Incrediboy and the Incredibles. I think of Thanos, who thought he was helping the world through annihilation. Trying to be the hero, he becomes the villain. You see, the, the key to the prequel of the life of Christ and the sequel of the Easter story and the truth for you and me is where we understand to be the person that we want to be in the hero. We're not supposed, in the story, we're not supposed to try to be the hero. You're supposed to try to be the helper. That's your job. All real heroes were never shown up to try to be a hero. You just look at Mother Teresa you look at people that have made huge differences in the world. All they did is they just wanted it to be small and real. They just wanted to be good at what they do, and they wanted to make someone's life beautiful. They wanted to spill their tears and their muscle and their blood into the ground so that where they were, they would start to see a blooming, a blossoming that takes place in the world. And what happens is history looks back on someone that chose to be the helper, on someone that chose to carry their cross, on someone that chose to lay down, to, to give their greatest good to the world, and they go, that's a hero. And so every single one of us is called into this narrative. And the reality of it is it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. That's one of the things that, that they don't tell you in a lot of churches the Christian life is really hard. It's, it's painful, but it's beautiful. You see, you're going to suffer through life. It's difficult. It's painful. It's hard to live life. You can go through life doing it for yourself. You can go through life kind of trying to prop yourself up. You can go through life spending parts of your time doing things that you know God doesn't bless. And at the end of that day, you're still going to be tired. Or 
You can spend your life going, I'm going to leverage all I have for God. I'm going to take my time, energy, and resources to build something beautiful in the world. And guess what? It's going to be painful. It's going to make you tired. And at the end of the day, you're still going to be tired. But there's going to be a massive difference. You're going to have done something that brings you peace. Did you know that as Christians, we're supposed to be worn out but peace-filled? We're supposed to be the kind of people who give everything. And then at the end of the day, I'm tired. Have you had seasons in your life where you were spending parts of your time not doing what God wants? And at the end of the day, you're still exhausted, but you're anxious, you're worried, you're full of regret, you're full of whatever shame that all comes with not using this beautiful gift that we all have called life the way we're supposed to. Or you pick what God has for you. You see, what happens when we become the real helper in the narrative, when we become the, 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 the Isaac, when we become like Christ, little Christians, which is what we're supposed to be and what we're called to and what we are actually called, is, man, we become great at our jobs. We are so good at our jobs. We go into work, we make it better. We're better leaders, we're better moms, we're better dads, we're better teachers, we're better friends. We just become these lights that just, just kind of give to the spaces that we're in. And from our efforts, something grows out of the ground all the time. That's what we're called to do. You want vision, you want purpose for your life. Here's what you need to know. If it's something that you love, that's a start. If it's immoral, throw it out. If it's something that you love, start there. Move down that road and then get good at it. And if it brings life to people, here's how you can test everything that we're called to in the name of Jesus during the time of the bride and the helper waiting for the groom. Here's what it is. It's when we leverage everything we are and the nucleus of that is loving God and loving others. Loving God and loving others. Paul says in the book of Galatians, he says the entire law is summed up to, in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says a little bit later, nothing matters, but faith manifested through love. Nothing else matters. So you can look at your whole life and you can go, what am I doing? Whose life am I improving? What mountain am I climbing? What time am I spending to make this more beautiful? And if you hear this and you go, whoo, this is rattling my cage, man. I got to go to work tomorrow. Wrestle with it. Have a weird couple of months, man. Have them. Wrestle with what you're doing. If it's not creating and it's not reliving this narrative of taking what is most valuable to you, taking it up to the mountain, offering it to God so that from that, the beautiful blossoms of resurrection can come into the world, stop and think about what you're doing with your life. Can I tell you, I know this can sound ethereal. I know this can sound theological. Can I tell you, this is about being a teacher, working in government. This is, can be any space where you shovel the darkness and plant something beautiful. Anywhere you go, you can be the Christ follower that God has called you to be. So it may just be that you, you need to like wiggle. It may it may just be that you need your, your spine adjusted. It may, it may mean that you need your head turned. But it may not necessarily mean that you need to abandon ship. 
Maybe you just need to take up a different job on the same one. And sometimes in life, the sacrificial part that's so painful, it comes to us and we don't ask for it. Sometimes the pain of becoming who God wants us to become is something that gets laid at our feet that we go, I, yeah, I didn't want this. Man, I'll take on being a dad and, and I'll take on working hard and I'll take on helping those kids and I'll, I'll do all this stuff. I'm gonna do all this stuff. But sometimes something gets laid at our feet like a relationship that you can't control that's causing a bunch of problems or sickness or some type of you know, circumstance in the world that's out of control. And you go, man, this has just gotten really dark. And what it does is it, it takes you back to the narrative. Because I don't want you to miss the narrative, right? This is beautiful. Father, son, promise, word, worship, all that stuff. But right in here, the substitution, the ram, the moment when Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, the gut-wrenching reality of moving into a dark space that you didn't want, Jesus dying on the cross, and certainly ending up in the darkness of a tomb dead for two days. That's part of the story. So in your story, there will be darkness. There will be a waiting. There will be a dungeon. And can I tell you one of the hallmarks, one of the cardinal realities of the Christian faith is God's supernatural ability to take the dark dungeon of your life and help you find life's greatest secrets. The greatest things in the world can come from the dungeon. The greatest reality, when you see the darkness, and it's so painful, and maybe that's because you're working hard, or maybe that's because something hard got laid at your feet. When you have that moment, if you don't know that it's part of the story, so many people abandon their faith. Stay in it, because in that darkness is a lesson. And if you can come out of that darkness, you will bring people light and treasure like never before. Can I tell you, one of the great myths in all of the world, and, and this is, it's mystical, it's part of literature. Speaking of prequels, one of the greatest prequels is The Hobbit. I remember when I was a little kid, someone gave the golden-leafed, like kind of golden Hobbit book to my brother. And uh, I was like, what is that? I mean, that just looks like amazing. Something happened in between those pages. And then, of course, it all got put. Peter Jackson put it in film. And then we saw The Lord of the Rings, and then The Hobbit came out. And one of those stories is about a dragon who is in a dungeon. He's in a cave. And what happens is the hobbits have to face the dragon. Why do you think there's always a dragon with the treasure? Because in order for you to get the treasure, your treasure you have to face the darkness. You're going to have to face it. There's going to be times where the pain of the, of the sacrifice and the reality of life is so overwhelming that you're thinking God's not in this. Can I tell you that when Jesus died on the cross and was certainly put into a tomb, do you think for one second that God was done working? He wasn't done. Have you ever just let something marinate? You just put it in the bag, you shake it up, you leave it in the refrigerator for a day and a half, and something happens. Something is going on. Don't abandon God's trajectory of giving your soul and your life for the greater good when the darkness comes. I had a prequel in my life. And can I tell you, when you have visions of what it means to be a Christian, 
and then you grow a little bit, it can get dark, and you can think, ah, maybe that wasn't God. And I tell you, as you grow, it's so important for you to be able to parse away the problems that you faced in your faith and know that there were certain things that got showed to you that were so pure and so Jesus, but then in the mix of all that with people and church and moms and dads and all the stuff, we can sometimes not see the beauty and the precious gift of Jesus because they're kind of wrapped up in this thing that is the church or some bad experience. Can I tell you that the most bitter people in the world are people that have been hurt by the church? You know, C.S. Lewis said, of evil men, religious are the worst. It can be really hard sometimes. And can I tell you, not to that degree of that, that is hyperbolic language, but like I have had moments where I've had to really parse what my experiences were and the purity and the beauty of the call and the mission and the love of God. And so I want to take you as I end this to a prequel that I had in my life that at the very beginning was so pure. And as I look at it now, I just see the vision of what God had for me. You know, it's so important. There's two things, and it, oh, they all come through one artist. In 1992, there was an artist that wrote a series of songs that just captured my heart. And the truth of those songs, I'm not going to sing, don't worry. The truth of those songs resonated with me, and I forgot about those things through the bitterness and the challenges of life, and I've recently been reminded. And there's two things. The first thing is just something that I want to tell somebody that I forgot, and then I think you need to know, and that is that you are God's greatest treasure that every human being is made in the image of God and you're his treasure. And the, the, the verse and, and the reality and the truth of love your neighbor as yourself is not just a command, it's an equation. It's not just a command, it's an equation. It means that in order to love your neighbor, you have to love yourself. You need to learn who you are. You know, the Bible says we love because we were first loved. You want to love your neighbor as yourself? You better understand how God loves you. If you hear me say, you need to learn to love yourself, and you think, well, Joel's just a woke liberal telling everybody to go with their feelings. No, 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 no. The reality of you and me is that it's complicated, that in every part of the goodness, there are veins of evil. That's total depravity. But God loved you so much in the midst of your sin that he was willing not to just come after you, but die for you. That is a representation of value. You get what you pay for. Your value is determined by what people are willing to pay for you. Some people just need to know that when life jumps on your back, when you get sick, when things go bad, when life's a mess, when you've messed up, when they've messed up, when it's messed up, that God, through it all, as clear as day, as clear as a bell, he calls you his treasure. He loves you. Having kids brings us to the forefront of reality. So there's a, there's a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman that came out in 1992 called The Treasure of You. And some people just need to hear this. Watching online, listening in the room, you just need to know this truth. It says this, excuse me, I couldn't help but notice that heart-sick look in your eyes. You hide it very well, but I've got the same disguise. I know from all you see around you, you feel worth a very small price, so plain and ordinary, but there's a pearl inside. And if you look in the mirror in the light of the truth, you'll see that there's really nothing you could say 
or do to make you worth more to the one who made you. You are a treasure, worth more than anything under the sun or the moon. God's greatest treasure is the treasure of you. The rich man treasures gold and silver. The wise man has knowledge of truth. Some will hold to memories and some will cling to youth. But to the one who carved out the oceans and painted the stars in the sky, you are his prized creation, the apple of his eye. There's no one else in this world who could take your place. Just the thought of you brings a smile to his face. God loves you with amazing grace. Some of you just need to hear that today. You just need to, you need to receive the gift of the journey of God before you can partake in the life of the journey of God. God is infatuated with you. He loves you not just the way he feels. Everything he's done throughout history is this wild pursuit of your well-being. He wants everything for you. And I'm just telling you, you need to hear that. The one who carved out the oceans, the one who painted the stars in the sky, he calls you a treasure. Now, if you don't know that, here's what you'll learn. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You don't know enough. You didn't do anything enough. And Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, your friends, your job, your spouse, your family will in their own ways, whether it's collective or separate, say that to you every single day. And the one who painted the thing that they can't filter well enough to make it more beautiful says you're his number one. You're his number one treasure. And with his treasures... He gives his greatest treats. He gives his greatest invitations. And he says, here's my journey. Join me in this journey. And there was another song that Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote that just as a kid, it just inspired me. You know, I just, I, I, I even had the, the VCS tape of his tour. And I used to watch his tour. And I said, one day I want to go on tour and be like Stephen Curtis Chapman. And he wrote this song called The Great Adventure. And can I tell you, like, this, this reality, this is what God's invited you into. Like, you know, don't, you don't want to seek out happiness. That's a bad idea. You want to seek out God's direction for your life. And that's going to be a wild, fun, challenging, scary at times, but rich and meaningful reality where you do something where at the end of the day, as hard as it was, you wake up and go, that was worth it. That was worth it. And he writes these words in The Great Adventure. It started out this morning in the usual way. Chasing thoughts inside my head of all I had to do today. Another time around the circle. Try to make it better than the last. I opened up the Bible and I read about me. It said I'd been a prisoner and God's grace had set me free. And somewhere in between the pages, it hit me like a lightning bolt. I saw a big frontier in front of me, and I heard somebody say, let's go. And it's a little cheesy, but the chorus starts, saddle up your horses. We've got a trail to blaze through the wild blue yonder of God's amazing grace. Let's follow our leader into the glorious unknown. This is a life like no other. This is the great adventure. 
you know, I know it's cheesy, right? But like, there's a donkey in this story. Like, they saddle up the donkey. Like, there's a reality that Jesus shows up on a horse kind of donkey going into Jerusalem. Like, you know, I don't know about you, but we all live pretty, like, proximate to here. You know, there's not a lot of horses around. And I don't know about you, but anybody that, like, is into that, like, that's an adventure, man. That's, like, something different. You know, I don't know if you're going to go to the beach or something this week, but have you ever gone on, a, like, a horseback ride on the beach, you know? And it's like, you're like oh, I'm going to just do that. Check that off. And then you show up, and you got to, like, step on a horse. And you're in panic mode. You know, it's like, get a picture of me. I'm on a horse. Because actually being on a horse is this insane thing to do unless you train all the time. But can I tell you, God has invited you into that type of thing where it's like, this is wild, man. Like, I'm going to leverage this. I'm going for it. Let's go. Let's do something. Let's leverage what we have. to bring this Christian beauty to life. So let me just pray for you, and we'll go watch March Madness. <laughs> Father, I just thank you so much for, oh, the great adventure and the reality of this prequel and how one day, God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that because the story of you gets into us, we become your followers in the truest sense that, you know, when people look at our lives, they really can say, like, man, that person's living the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus just, just in their job as a parent, as a friend, as a son and daughter, that, would just, that we would just get into us. And it wouldn't just be something we say we believe or think about, but something we do every day. I just pray, God, that that would just be exemplary to those around us and that one day our story could be someone's prequel. You know, like the way we live, it just becomes like, oh, I want that. I want to live that way. I want to give that way. Father, that, that through our efforts, just as, as this effort of Isaac and his, and his dad, and through the effort of you and your dad, and the gift that you gave us, God, that the, that the transformation that comes from that would just multiply through these cameras and through these ears and through these hands and through these feet. God, we, we pray, God, that we would be willing to take steps and move towards you in a new and wonderful way. And we really look forward to celebrating the resurrection story and your love for us even more in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen.